Well, God is the one who is the Savior, the King, the Ruler. And uh, as we gather together, we gather in joy. Why? Because Jesus is risen. We, we, we celebrate with the joy of the resurrected Christ. And I, I, you know, there are some weeks where when we gather and we're singing, uh, well, frankly, it's a little, uh, I don't know, a little cold. Uh, today, it was a joy to be able to just hear our praises rise to God together. Um, and, and to realize that uh, our king is victorious. And, and that means no matter what we're facing right now, no matter where we're at, we rest in his, his victory. And so uh, I'm grateful for the songs that we sang and, and uh, the truth that they contain. But I also think when we gather together like this, there can be, I don't know if you feel it, but kind of a pressure sometimes to come in and have that kind of mask on. You know what I'm talking about? That uh, there was a video done many, many years ago, and it was almost like, you know, a person walks into the room, and they've got the, you know, the yellow, the yellow happy face, the yellow smiley face? And they kind of have to, they have to wear, everybody's walking around with those on their, you know, faces. And then, you know, they find themselves back at home when they get there, and they just take the thing off underneath, you know. They, you know, they've got tears, they've got, all things are happening. And, and, I, and I feel like sometimes we can, not intentionally, but unintentionally, get caught up, kind of, in a... Uh, kind of surfacey, kind of plastic-looking uh, sort of joy with a little J, and, and we're not really dealing with life. And I love how the Bible, when we get into God's Word, it's bigger than that, it's deeper than that, it's more real than that. Because God is the one who's dealing with us with, with, where, with real life and where we're really at. And, and so today... Uh, as we continue in our series in, in, in Ezra, uh, we're dealing with a very, very important issue. And that is the issue of opposition and the discouragement that comes from opposition. And, and I just want to ask a question. Do you ever feel overwhelmed in your life by discouragement? Do you ever feel like the oppositions that come against you are just such that you just don't know that you can take even your, your next step. And, and, and the thing is, I know for my life, as I, as I see it, it, it comes in different ways. So sometimes it's from outside of me. You know, sometimes I have maybe a, a goal or a desire. I, I want to do something and, and it gets pushed aside or, or delayed or completely derailed. Uh, sometimes I'm sinned against by other people and it hurts. You know, some, sometimes there's a trial that's just beyond my ability to control. I, you know, maybe there's a family member whose health is, is ailing and I, I can't do anything about it. Uh, so sometimes it's circumstances within maybe a career. You know, you want to take certain steps and you feel like you can't. Maybe, maybe your boss is always opposing you. Or there's someone else who's, who's uh, ascending faster and farther than you. Um, sometimes there's financial pressures. Sometimes we, who knows what it is? But there's, there's these things outside of us. And th- that's hard. Those are hard trials to deal with. Um, sometimes it's because you're someone who follows Jesus and someone else is aware of it and, and, and they don't like you because they don't like him and they're after you. And those are all difficult things. But I think also sometimes, at least for me, discouragement comes because of the opposition I find within myself. I, I think... It, there are times where I, I want to do what's right. I feel like Paul. 
You know, I, I desire to do what's right, yet I find within myself a law that's, that's causing me, indwelling sin, that's causing me to go against the very things that I love. And I would say that that's Romans chapter 7. I do believe that's Paul as a believer speaking there. And for, for, you know, in that passage, we find several indications of that. One would be this. I believe that God's law is good. I long for it. We're told in chapter 8 that the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, is opposed to God's law, cannot submit itself to the law of God. Uh, so, no, Paul is certainly in a different place as he's describing his situation there. And so indwelling sin. When I'm battling indwelling sin, I feel like I am losing that battle. Has that ever happened with you? There are times that we find ourselves overwhelmed by opposition and discouragement from the outside, from the inside. If that's you, then today's message is for you. Because God has a lot to say about the way we face that. God has a lot to say about how he works in and through those times in our lives. And so I want to invite you to turn to Ezra chapter 4. And we'll be looking today at chapter 4, verses 1 through chapter 6, verse 12. You'll find that on page 346 if you're using the Bible on the chair rack in front of you. And I just want to thank the Lord for Eric and last week and how he took us through uh, the the, the ways in which the rebuilding was happening and focusing on the God, the worship of God, and how even all those things regarding the, 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 the temple points ahead to Christ. I'm just really grateful for his ministry to us last week in that. But now we're, we're, we're coming to a place where uh, there is uh, opposition. And it's opposition that, uh, that comes at the people of God in a very, very sly way. So... Uh, if you would, uh, in honor of God's word, would you please stand and, and follow along as I read. Ezra, chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households and said to them, let us build with you. For we, like you, seek your God, and we've been sacrificing to him since the days of Irshadon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build for the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and ask that you would take these words, apply them to our hearts. We ask that your spirit would work amongst us, even in these moments, that we would leave today different than we came and that certainly we would have from you uh, provisions to face uh, the oppositions and discouragements of our own lives, especially as we as your people seek to glorify you and honor you and walk with you and be a, a, a light to those around us. We ask that you'd accomplish these things in the name of Jesus, our risen King. Amen. Take your seats. 
So what we're going to do is we'll go through the narrative, we'll pull out pieces of application as we go, and then we'll have, actually have a, a, a more concentrated time of some takeaways at the end. But uh, let's, let's go through and see how, how God d- deals with this, uh, this opposition that comes from, from those who would seek to derail God's work. And, and we find uh, several things here. First, we find that there are different ways that the enemies of God oppose him and oppose his work. And interestingly enough, one of the first ways it can happen is by seeking to join the work. <laughs> You're thinking, wait, that, that's kind of counterintuitive. Yeah, well, it's seeking to join the work, but it's in a subversive way. And that happens often. And so we find here that, that these are enemies of Judah and Benjamin. It's the very first descriptor we see in the passage. So we know that these aren't just neutral people saying, hey, what are you doing? It's not like a neighbor coming up. Oh, you're painting your house? Can I help you? That's not what's going on here. No, these are enemies. And they're feigning a supportive attitude because they actually want to get in and, and either hijack the work in order to worship God in a syncretistic way in the ways that they've been worshiping him or maybe to derail the effort altogether. But you'll notice that in verse 2, uh, Zerubbabel and the leaders, they don't fall for it. Uh, they... they they don't, uh, they don't go along with, I'm sorry, in verse 3, they don't, they don't go along with their suggestion. And, and we find that if we're looking at who are these people and what are they talking about and who is this Eshar Haddon, the king of Assyria? Well, as it turns out, uh, in the British Museum, like I mentioned before, there's a lot of artifacts there. Uh, we have some friends here who are from Britain. I'm not insulting your country. Don't worry. But when you rule most of the planet, you get a lot of the artifacts and you can actually go there today and you can see there's a large cylinder and inscribed on it are uh, what are called the Annals of Esharhaddon, uh, Assyrian king, from about 681 B.C. to 669 B.C. And it describes how he deported large numbers of Israelites from Israel. It also describes how he brought in various people of, of the surrounding nations. And so what happened was, um, you know, there were a lot of intermarrying with the Jewish women that remained in that region. And so their descendants became uh, what would be later, be later be known as the Samaritans. And these are, again, a group over time that would prove themselves to be treacherous enemies of God's people. When Jesus tells the account of the Good Samaritan, he's not picking that group of people simply because, oh, I need another group to kind of contrast. No, these were a group of people who were hated by, by Jewish people of that time. And there's a reason for that, because over the centuries, there were treacherous uh, ways in which they attempted to, to derail God's people. And so the Samaritans had developed sort of a syncretistic form of worship. They would take different pieces of, of different cultures and, and different ways and kind of blend them all together and then worship God in kind of this, this quasi-Yahweh-centered and quasi-other-God-centered kind of uh, way. And so they kind of had, a, they had, they had a, a lot of superstitions that they had brought into the way they worshiped God. And so, uh, again, the Jewish leaders and, and Zerubbabel especially rejected that. And so that didn't work for them. And they're like, uh, we tried to get in, we tried to infiltrate, and we couldn't. And, and I think we need to be careful of that very same thing today, do we not? Uh, syncretism is alive and well. There are all kinds of ways that today people attempt to come into and amongst God's people and bring other things in to try to harmonize them with the world around us. And so certainly everything we would see with, with uh, um, different, different groups that would want to affirm, let's say, the LGBTQ plus movement along with 
uh, what they would call Christianity and say that, well, we can blend them together. And again, for, for us, we would say, no, you know, we, we want to be, we don't, we're not the church that says, um, yes, go exercise your independence and live however you want and invent your own way. Uh, we're not saying that. And we're also not the church that says, your kind aren't welcome around here. That's not us. We're, we're trying to navigate what the Bible would say, which is, come on in, you're welcome here. And yet, we would call every form of sexuality not uh, described by the Bible's one man, one woman, in a lifelong marriage, anything outside of that, we're going to call sin. And, and so we're going to, but again, we're also going to call other things sin too, right? We're going to say, hey, come on in, and we're going to call sin out. We're going to call it out in terms of the people who are, uh, those of us who are coveting, or those of us who are greedy, or those of us who are self-righteous, or those of us who, who deal with other sins, right? Well, they're all, we, we call all, all sin is fair game. Uh, because the Bible describes it that way. So we, we welcome everybody because we realize the sin problem isn't out there. As we've said, the sin problem is here. We are all repenting before God and turning to him. And so, uh, so again, syncretism, though. We want, we want to be clear. We, we don't just affirm what's around us in order to blend in. Uh, no, we want to be clear about what the truth is. So they couldn't, they couldn't derail it that way. So there's another way in which the enemies of God, again, or those who would attempt to oppose God or derail God's, God's work uh, would do it, and that is by discouragement. And we find that in verses 4 and 5. The people of the land discouraged Judah and frightened them. And we find this, we'll, we'll get to this later um, in, in the series, but there's actually different times. When Ezra arrives on the scene, on the scene in chapter 7, there's going to be another round that, that comes about with discouragement. But the, the point would be they don't want God's people to continue this work. And so you, you kind of heard that old saying, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. Well, they're employing the reverse. If you can't join them, beat them. And so they're, they're looking at ways they can do that. And so what they do is they actually hire people who are, I guess you'd say, professional discouragers, which is a strange thing. Like, what, what on earth would that be, you know? You give some of your card. Hi, I'm a professional discourager. That's what I do. I've got really good Yelp reviews. You should hire me. I'll discourage anybody you want me to discourage, you know? Some of you feel like, I think I know people like that, actually. <laughs> I know some professional discouragers in my life. But that's what they, that's what they did. They, they were there to uh, frustrate and discourage. And they, and they would use words to do that. Uh, they certainly probably used other ways of attempting to confuse the people of God. And again, in Nehemiah and other places, we see you're using actual words of discouragement. What do you think you're doing? You can't do this. You can't build this. You can't complete this. Discouragement is very powerful. Uh, there's, a, there's an old story that I, I like because it, it um, conveys this well, but you know, it's, it's a kind of a parable kind of thing. But you know, the, the devil essentially is selling his tools. You know, and someone's coming along to go, oh, I'd like to buy some. Like, well, come on in. Take a look at what, what I've got here. And... Um, you know, what's that? Well, that's lust. That's really helpful. And you can use that one. And the guy's like, yeah, maybe, I don't know. And then, and then you know, what's that one? Well, that's, that's false teaching. That one always works, gets people off track. Oh, that's good. But then there was one that was most worn out, most used. Which one is this? Oh, that's my favorite. It's discouragement. Very effective. And, and, and they find themselves battling this 
And I think, obviously, for us, we need to look at that and go, is that that happening in our lives? You know, and how does it happen? And and that's that's really something that um, we need to see, is that discouragement is there. Not, it's just not, it it shows us that we're not walking around on on neutral ground. We're not going through life, you know, in, in, in some sort of, like, pristine environment where there's nothing battling against us that we need to, to face. No, instead, we're, 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 in, we're in a battlefield. And we need to understand that. And, and so now, Ezra does something very interesting as he's writing. Very interesting. Uh, because what he does is he does something um, that we don't quite understand in the way we usually go through narratives. You've heard of a flashback, you know? He does here a flash forward. In other words, from verses 6 all the way through verse 23, he looks ahead several other reigns later of different kings. He looks to the, to the reign of Ahasuerus. We would know him also as Xerxes. So he was king during the time of Esther. So we've been in the book of Esther before. That, that's who was reigning at that time. And then after that, verses 7 and following, there's the days of Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes ruled from 464 to 423 BC. And so he's looking ahead to those times because the time that, uh, that Ezra actually penned this was during the reign of Artaxerxes. So he's, he's doing a flash forward. And he's showing that this opposition is going, ongoing. Uh, and, and it also shows another way in which enemies or, or those who oppose God's work do it. It's not just by seeking to join the work, and it's not just by discouragement. It's also by manipulating earthly power. Because what happens is Cyrus and Darius, that's one period of history, but ahead, Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes goes farther out to show that, well, really, to show us that what all of us need to understand, every generation that's seeking to faithfully follow God is going to find opposition in a world that is in rebellion against God. Every generation. It's always going to happen that way. This is not something new. God's people have faced opposition in every era. Since our our parents, Adam and Eve, fell in the garden to this very day. We've always faced that. And so we shouldn't expect any different. And so in verse 6, there's an accusation that the opponents to God's people wrote to the king. And then in verses 7 and following, we find yet another letter written. And by the way, the language here does shift into Aramaic. It's interesting. It's been in Hebrew this whole time, and now it goes into Aramaic. It's an actual quote of that letter. And, and, and it's, it's got a lot of formal language. It's got a lot of diplomatic language. It has, it's very much respectful to the king. And... Uh, and there's, as you can see, uh, if we look at uh, verse 11, go ahead and look there. It says, To the king Artaxerxes, your servants, men of the region beyond the river, and now let it be known that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem, and they are rebuilding a rebellious and evil city. Spin is not a new thing either, okay? This is very much a, uh, a way in which they are attempting to paint God's people as being rebellious. When in fact, Cyrus had already told them to go do this, right? So, but they're being selective. And they say, you should take, take a quick look at the records, verse 15. 
And you'll discover that this city is a rebellious city and damaging to the kings and provinces. And, and, and most importantly, they, they have a very interesting way of kind of twisting words and, and painting the people of God in a certain way um, that they actually hammer in on things that a king would care about the most. First would be submission to his laws and rules. They're saying they're not going to submit. Why? Because they're a rebellious city. But not only that, another thing that most kings care about is the collection of taxes and tributes from subjects. And notice what they say in verse 13. Take a look there. Now let it be known, king, that if this city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they are not going to pay tribute, custom, or toll, and it will damage the revenue of the kings. <laughs> so he's saying, you're going to lose money if this happens. And so what does King Artaxerxes do? He actually has them research the records of course, they're looking for certain things. They're looking for that era of time as recorded in history that Israel was rebellious. And he finds what he wants. And so in verses 17 and following, there's an answer given. And uh, in verse 21, it says, Now issue a decree and make these men stop the work that the city may not be rebuilt and the decree is issued until the decree is issued by me. And beware of being negligent in carrying out this matter. Why should damage increase to the detriment of the king's? And so as soon as the opponents got that, they went back and stopped the work by force. So again, that's all looking ahead. And then Ezra comes back in verse 24 to the situation at hand, back to um, where he had left off and says, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased and it stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So it appears... That the, that the work is done. In verse 24, we kind of have this sorrowful moment of, oh, it stopped. It isn't happening anymore. It's not moving forward. And yet there's a glimmer of hope given at the end of the verse. Until the second year of the reign of Darius. And so we find it's a very discouraging moment, and yet there's hope given. And, and, and we come to the, I kind of ask the question, well, what does God do when his people are are, are stopped, are, are paralyzed, are discouraged from opposition? What does God do when, when, when his people are, are burdened down with, with fear and unable to take steps forward? And what's fascinating is we find at the opening of verse five, or chapter 5 exactly what he does. He sends prophets to declare his word. So go ahead and look at verse, chapter 5, verses 1 and following. When the prophets Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel, who was over them, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shethiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Isn't that amazing? God's people are down. They are discouraged. They're paralyzed. And what happens? He sends his prophets to declare his word. And, and, and that's what we find. That's what God does. Um, the very opening statement we see that, that, that the preaching of God's word prompts God's people to encouragement and repentance. And so the motivation to restart the work comes. And, and we find that they're now beginning to move forward with that. And you've got to love that it's Haggai 
and Zechariah. We don't have time to, to go into this too much, but, but these two prophets, you couldn't imagine uh, more different types of people. Because Haggai, he's, he's the guy who just, man, he, he's just straightforward. He just brings it blunt. Um, he, 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 his, his work begins with, in that way, with just this blunt statement of confrontation. Whereas uh, Zechariah, he's more the visionary. He's more like, look at the big picture. Look up and see what God's doing. Look at the fact that he, he rules over all things and he's bringing about his plan even through these difficulties. But, you know, as, as far as Haggai goes, his, his, uh, the book Haggai records four sermons, essentially. And, uh, and it's, 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 it's wild to see how, uh, how he brings that about, you know, in, in terms of his word, the, the word of God being declared. But he just, he just calls it. And he just says, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, This people says, Time has not come even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. In other words, God's people had been procrastinating, saying, well, you know what? The time for building temples isn't right now. It's just not right. Uh, I think, I think we've got, we got to find a better, quote-unquote, time. And so what did that mean? Well, instead, they were working on other things. And he goes on to confront them and says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? You see what they were doing? They were discouraged. And because they were discouraged, they became distracted and preoccupied with themselves. They were busy building themselves extravagant homes with, with paneling. And by the way, paneling was usually uh, something that would be in royal dwellings, the cedar paneling. And so he was confronting the people. And, and you think, well, what was the result of this? Well, the people were convicted. And they turned. They were like, wait, wait, what are we doing? Why am I so caught up in building my own place, building my own life, doing my own thing. God's called us here out of Babylon to Jerusalem for a purpose. Why am I living like I'm still in Babylon? And so under conviction, they turned away from from that whole kind of preoccupation with their own home, and they returned with zeal to the work before them in rebuilding the temple. Uh, Zechariah also had things to say. Again, he, Zechariah's name actually means God has remembered. And, and, uh, and his, he, he just called out to them. The, his book opens with, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Remember. So the relationship between God and his people, it had been, it had been uh, distant because of their sin, because of, of their falling into that, uh, that discouraged mindset because of the opposition around them, it overwhelmed them. And so Zechariah calls them to repentance. And, uh, and so, so we find that God's word goes forward and God's word does powerful things. And, and in, um, as they repent, you look at verse three of chapter five, there's still opposition there, but they're not falling for it. There's a guy, a governor named Tatianai, and the governor of the province beyond the river, he's called. And he's confronting them, going, hey, what's going on? What are you doing? Why are you building? And because this is a different leader, a different local leader, 
he had kind of a different approach because Darius was a newer king. So this local leader, if you can imagine, you know, there's a new greater ruler over you. You're kind of like, I don't want to offend him, but I want to do what's right, but I'm not sure. And so this entire section from chapter 5, verses 6 and following is sort of like a big politically correct way of this ruler asking permission from Darius to, should these guys continue or should they stop? I don't know. So he's kind of covering himself. You know, he doesn't want to offend. But he also wants to be diplomatic. And so again, the, the, the language here of writing to Darius um, is, is something where he's going to petition Darius and say, hey, please give us your ruling on this. What are we supposed to do? But there's also something else happening here. Um, in verse 5, notice this. But the eye of the Lord was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop until a report could come from Darius, and then a written reply be returned concerning it. And so what's happening here is God's eye. The idea would be God is watching over. God is looking over this. God is orchestrating it all by his providence. And, and their, their response now is, we will stop when the king says stop. And even, even the, the under ruler is saying, by God's providence again, when we get a ruling on whether or not you can keep going, then you'll need to stop. So there's God's favor through this. The local governor wants to show fealty to his new ruler. And so, uh, you know, he wants to make sure that he's not going to get in trouble with Darius. And so the, the, um, the request goes out. And that's when we find also, again, another way in which God uh, cares for his discouraged people. He doesn't just... Uh, declare his word to them. He also shows the demonstration of his sovereign power. And we find that through the rest of, of the account. Because this, this, this request goes out to Darius. Um, and he reports to Darius exactly what God's people had said. He kind of summarizes in some ways what's happened in the book of Ezra so far in verses 6 through 17. Um, and then that concludes, if you look at chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Now if it pleases the king, this is the request from the local governor, let a search be conducted in the king's treasure house, which is here in Babylon. If that decree was issued by King Cyrus, because people can't remember, was, it, was that really a decree from Cyrus? To rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem and let the king send to us his decision concerning the matter. And so Darius does it. He, he has his people look for that decree. And if you can imagine, I don't know about you, but if, if you've ever like, not been able to find a file before, you know, and you're like, what would I do with that? That's why, by the way, I, I hate paper. Just paper and I don't get along, right? Because who knows where it is? Uh, my wife, Jan, and I sometimes will have like even conversations about, you know, where is this thing? And I'll be like, you mean it's on a sheet of paper? Like, how am I supposed to know? It's paper, right? Where's that, you know? Well, they had manuscripts. Actually, there uh, during that time, they would actually use pieces of leather and inscribe on leather so it would stick around for a while. That was kind of what they were using. And they're looking for this thing. Where is that decree from Cyrus? I don't know. Do you have it? I'm not sure. Do you have it? Well, lo and behold, um, you'll notice in verse 2, in Ekbatana, in the fortress, which is in the province of Media, a scroll was found. And there it was written as follows. Memorandum In the first year of King Cyrus, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, and on and on it goes and describes exactly what they had said. It's interesting, this Ekbaktana place, because of the climate and where it's at, it's actually kind of in northern Iran from our vantage point. But it was kind of the summer house for kings at that time. So it's like, oh man, I left it in the summer home, in the attic kind of thing. They find this thing, they read it, and it is, it is amazing, uh, you know, Darius actually, Darius did not, um, historically, he didn't, 
create a lot of the roads that went throughout the, the empire at that time, but he did get them fixed. And then he was the one who set up different outposts. And um, as a matter of fact, the Persians, from what I understand, they invented horseshoes. Okay, that's where you first see horseshoes on horses so that they could actually get the post to each post. So the letters actually traveled fairly quickly. So it's a massive empire, and you're seeing maybe this thing coming from um, you know, the, the, this place, Ekbaktana, to Darius in a relatively, you know, maybe a week's time, short time compared to what it would normally be uh, because of just how that was set up. So they find out, lo and behold, wait, that's exactly what Cyrus commanded. And if you look at, uh, historically, Darius actually admired Cyrus a lot. So he kind of wanted to emulate him in some ways. And so he, uh, he, he declared in verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 7, Leave this work on the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild the house of God on this site. Moreover, I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for these elders of Judah in the rebuilding of this house for God. The full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the provinces beyond the river. And that without delay. Whoa! totally the opposite. What's it? So one king opposes, God works through that, God, you know, sends prophets, his people are convicted. Now, the, the word of God is declared by the prophets, the people repent, but not only that, there's a demonstration of God's sovereign power and that he actually harnesses kind of these unrighteous desires and goals of people to kind of, kind of go up the ladder politically. The local governor wanting to show, you know, how much he's going to obey the new ruler the diplomatic language, all the customs, etc. And yet, what do we find? God uses all that to not only allow the temple to be rebuilt, but on top of that, local tax dollars are going to be used to rebuild it. I mean, it, you know, we have our you know, Access for All project. That would be like Governor Newsom showing up on the doorstep and saying, hey, I've got a check for you guys for $2 million to do the AFA project. Would we take it or not? Totally different story. Okay, I'm not going to go there. I'm not talking about that. That's not my point. But the point is, that would be wild, right? And that's what's happening here. And then he goes on from there. Verse 9. Whatever is needed, both young bulls, rams, and lambs, for a burnt offering to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and anointing oil, as the priests of Jerusalem request it, is to be given to them, notice this, daily, without fail. I mean, again, that would be like... Newsom going, not only that, but whatever you need, let me know. Any day of the week, it'll be here. Amazing. Notice verse 10, that they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. You see what, you see what Darius is doing? He's not saying, I, I believe that Yahweh is the only true God. He's, he's not embraced by faith, trust in Yahweh at this time. Not at all. But as a polytheist, he wants all the gods of all the peoples he's ruling over to be on his side. You know? So, hey, if they can offer sacrifices for me, if this God of heaven, as they call him, I'll take it. If he can be on my side, nope, that sounds good. And then, verse 11, we find out why, maybe a little bit, that this local governor was so careful in his uh, kind of letter to Darius. Notice what it says. And I issue a decree that any man who violates this edict, a timber shall be drawn from his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a refuse heap on account of this. Oh, okay. So that's kind of how Darius rolls. 
Oh, I, you, you don't do what I say? Great. Get a log from their house. Pull it over here. Boom. You know, I mean, it's... So then and it concludes, May the God who caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who attempts to change it so as to destroy the house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be carried out in all diligence. Wow. So this is how God worked in that time to rebuild the temple. And yet we worship the very same God today. And there's several things that we need to take away or hold on to or remember or live in light of. And, and the first would be this. Opposition and discouragement are to be expected by God's people. Um, we're, we're, we're told throughout Scripture that this happens. This has always been the pattern. So, again, do you ever sense that each step forward you make in your Christian walk, you find yourself taking three steps backwards? Do you ever find yourself in the place of... of just feeling beaten down, maybe by things outside of you, maybe it's by things within you. Uh, these chapters in Ezra give us a lesson in biblical realism. Yeah. Again, even with that f- flash forward, you know, Ezra's really saying to them, do you see the trouble you're facing now? Well, it's been like this for the past hundred years. No, for the past 200 years. No, before Babylon invaded. No, from the time that Adam and Eve were evicted from the garden. It's not to surprise us. We're even told that, right? When Peter writes, you know, when, when, when fiery trials come upon you, don't be surprised as if some strange thing is happening to you. And, and I think our brothers and sisters around the world understand this a lot more than American Christians do. I feel like for us, we are so used to things going our way, so used to comfort. Everything we see in the media, on TV, it's always like, you know, yeah, it's happening. Everything's going on. Uh, Again, social media, I know I feel like I'm railing on it all the time, but frankly, it deserves it, okay? Because it's not really social and it's not media. It's more of a look at all the things I'm doing that are great that you're missing out on. Media. There's that app, Be Real. It cracks me up because it's not real. It's fake. And again, if you're a young person here today and you're using Be Real, I'm not saying, you know, you shouldn't do that. All I'm saying is it's not real, folks. Let's just be honest. It's everybody putting their best face forward in that moment. Um, yeah, but we, we find this. Every age there's struggle. And, and we have this way of romanticizing the past, maybe, or romanticizing what's happening to other people. But most believers experience suffering and trials. And, and this should not cause us to distort our expectations, nor should it cause us to live in those moments as if, for some reason, God's grace has failed. Because, really, opposition, discouragement, difficulty, fear, all those things are prominent themes throughout the Bible. From Pharaoh to the you know, time of the Exodus to, to the Amalekites' opposition of God's people to the Edomites' opposition of God's people to the Philistine, to others. And again, throughout history, uh, people have tried to destroy God's people, Israel. And, and Christians as well. Those of us who are with, you know, joined to Jesus because of the beauties of the new covenant. As Jesus were, was persecuted, he tells us, so his followers 
have been persecuted and are going to be persecuted. Paul even writes, everyone who wants to live in a way that's godly or reflects God's values or, or honors God, they're going to be persecuted. It's to be expected. And we find, you know, even sometimes we think, well, but that's not true in modern life. No, it's not as true in modern life here. But again, as we've said before, in many ways, the United States of America, we're kind of like the Disneyland of the planet. We kind of are. Um, there are tens of thousands of Christian martyrs every year that we know of around the world. There are 147 countries today where Christians are harassed under threat of violence, prison, or penalty of death. And so this reminds us, we live in a fallen world and, and we are in a struggle. And there are enemies out to hinder God's plan. But, but here's the other thing we learn. God doesn't leave us there. Because, and that's the next takeaway, and that's this. Opposition intended to hinder God's work is used by God to further his work. Isn't that beautiful? That's what God does. The very thing intended to derail what God's doing, and, and he could just show up and just blast it away and go, no, I'm putting this here. But you know what God does instead, often? He comes in and he takes the very effort against him and uses that very effort, the energy from that effort, the plan of that effort, everything about it, to thwart the effort and to further his plan at the same time. Uh, during the reign of Xerxes or, or, with, with Esther, remember Mordecai comes up with you know, that, that whole thing of standing firm before God and there's a guy named Haman. And what does Haman do? He plots, I'm going to have the Jews destroyed. So he has this edict signed by the king. He erects gallows behind his house. How does the story end? Haman is the one hung on the very gallows that he made for others. And the Jewish people are given freedom and the ability to defend themselves. So when, when an enemy tries to derail God's plan, God uses their efforts to bring about his plan in spite of them and even through them. And so God's plan can't be thwarted by opposition, by delays, by fear. And, and that's where, brothers and sisters, we've got to be really clear on this. Because so often when we experience opposition or we experience delay or fear or whatever it is, we feel like, where'd God go? Why isn't he coming through for me on this? Am I now missing or, or, or has God's grace been removed from my life in some way? And we've got to be very careful that our joy not rest on the outcomes that we expect, but instead on the character and faithful purposes of God. God's faithful, loving kindness is never thwarted. Even in the midst of our most painful disappointments, he's showing his grace to us and he's bringing about his purposes. Sometimes, sometimes we're in that moment of just, how did this happen? Why am I here? But in hindsight, when we look back, we're like, wait, it could not have possibly happened any other way. I'm very grateful uh, last week when Eric brought up, um, you know, the fact that uh, Janet and I and our family have been here for the past 15 years. So we praise God for that. We're thankful for that. But I want to tell you something. I was thinking about this passage and thinking about this idea of, of you know, 
How can this happen? And then you look back and you go, it wouldn't have happened any other way. Folks, it wasn't like Janet and I woke up one morning and said, you know what, we want to go to Northern California and serve at a church there. That was not our plan at all. Uh, I actually uh, ended up, because of the trials that were happening and then difficulties and the fact that God just showed us, it is time for you to go. Very clearly. Heartache, difficulty. That's what started to get us to even ask the question, should we go anywhere? And then uh, I recall interviewing at a church that was down there in SoCal, close by. And uh, they were nice about it, but they said no. And I remember showing Janet the letter, and she was just like, oh, no. We have to move. (laughs) But I want to tell you this. When we look back on it, we praise God that God brought us here. We praise God that God has... Use, it's, it's not easy. We, we, this is not an easy place for us, all of us together. We all know this together. It's not an easy place to minister. But we're grateful for this church family, for each of you. We're grateful also for what God's doing in and through hard times. And now when we look back, we're very much, how could this have happened any other way? Now sometimes God allows us in this life to see those things. Other times, I don't know that he shows us. Now, think of the book of Job. We have no indication that Job was aware at all of the dialogue happening between the Lord God and Satan. We don't know that he ever saw that until later. Which is why we need to hold on to God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is never, ever derailed through every trial. And he shows his grace in and through the trial. So our biggest disappointments, our biggest discouragements, the oppositions that we sense the most in our lives, they are not a demonstration of the absence of God's grace. No, they are instead the very proof of God's grace because he's sovereignly using those things to cause us to become the people he wants us to be. So whether it's family rejection or or false accusations or being forgotten or betrayed, in some cases even for for sensing you're being exploited or, 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 or just relegated to the background and neglected, as we look to God in and through these things and as we follow him in this, we become more and more like his son Jesus. And that's really the entire point of this whole thing. As Eric beautifully pointed out last week, the temple is there to point ahead to who? The Lord Jesus himself. The opening of the Gospel of John. And the word became flesh and dwelt, there's the word, among us. Christ came. He lived a life we could never live. He died the death that we deserve. And he rose again to demonstrate that he's paid for our sins in full. And so now because of that, because of Jesus, we need to remember to press ahead through opposition because Christ has already won. 
We don't do this in order to gain his love, but because he's already demonstrated his love on the cross. We love because he first loved us. Jesus is the one who is victorious and who is returning soon. And so what we sense right now oftentimes delays. You know, sometimes that's actually God's mercy that it's a delay. We don't know what we need as much as he does. You know, you think of Abraham, you think of the way Abraham waited and waited and waited. You think of Israel in the wilderness, 40 years. That's God's divine pattern to grow our faith and our vision of his mighty work among us. So as we press ahead through opposition, brothers and sisters, let's do so because Jesus has already won. And if you're here today and you've never come to that place of trusting in Christ, the invitation is open to you. You can know what it means to be forgiven of your sin. You can know what it means to have your sins cast into the depths of the sea, never to return, to be made white as snow because of what Christ has done. You can know what it means to be reconciled to the one who made you. Turn to him today. But let's make sure that as we face opposition, we do so secure in what Jesus has already accomplished. He's the victor. And because we are united with him, we share in his victory over all things. Sin, death, and hell. Let's grow in our faith and vision of his mighty work among us for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and ask that you would help us to see these things. Even as opposition and discouragement is so much a part of our daily existence, we thank you that nothing thwarts your plan, your faithfulness, and your purpose. And thank you that in Christ... We share in his victory and we await his return. We praise you for all these things in his name. Amen.